stepping to the mic today. You know the family, Chris Miles and TJ here. But our guest today, Todd Bozeman, whose distinction, we're going to put the number one part of it on the list. Uh, youngest coach in NCAA history to lead a team to the Sweet 16. Did it way back in the days at just 29 years young. We're not going to put your age out there now, Todd, but thank you for stepping to the mic today. We appreciate you. I appreciate you guys having me. And first of all, let's make sure we put it out there. I am 57 years young. So I have no problems with that. The fact that I'm still here is a blessing. So I want to I wanna share how long I've been here. So I'm good with that. But I appreciate you. Let's start with somebody that I guess we both know in, in one way, shape, or form, someone you're more familiar with than I am. But Jason Kidd, I remember the first time that I saw footage of him. He did the double behind the back, you know, and I was like, oh, that. I'll never be able to do that. This guy is incredible. And then when I had the chance to host a show with him and he walked in and I was trying to act like I wasn't shell-shocked at the fact that Jason Kidd was sitting right next to me. Uh, for you, when was the first time you encountered J. Kidd and what was it like as, you know, talking to a kid that was a high school student but obviously uh, was an uber-talented player with Hall of Fame potential? Um. You know, uh, that's funny. That game you're talking about was the Kansas game at at, at Allen Fieldhouse. Um, I say, I would say the first time I saw him was at uh, ABCD camp in Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, I had just got the job in May. And the camp, I think, was in uh, July. It might have been June back then. Uh, but I, I got the job and... Uh, and he was the first name on the list. And uh, people thought that it was, it was uh, a stretch um, because they hadn't had a player of that caliber, but he was local and I didn't know no better. And, you know, <laughs> from the East Coast and we were brash and, and I, I was young and I was like, why, why can't he come here? So that my first time seeing him was in Princeton and he was playing with, uh, Eric uh, played at Duke, uh, uh, Eric Meeks was on his team and he was a junior and he was pretty much dominating the game and he wasn't even scoring. So that was my first time seeing him was at ABCD camp. And I, I was, uh, clearly I was, uh, <clears throat> I was like, he's the guy, you gotta get him, if you can get him. Todd, I, I have the luxury, man, because you and I are cigar smokers, we like to enjoy you know, talking basketball over a good stick, you know, but, you know, you've shared with me some of the great ways as an assistant coach and as a former assistant coach, the way you move up in this league is to be uh, being able to show that you can grab talent, that you can recruit because great recruits make you a great coach. Ultimately talk about the recruiting process with Jay kid. Talk about how he ended up your brashness that you talked about. How did that help you land the biggest fish in the game out of Oakland? Well, first of all, let's 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 make sure we clear up the fact that you told me we were doing this interview in a cigar lounge. That's how you that, that's how you that's how you positioned it to me. So then when I got these emails saying I'm just doing a Zoom, that kind of you know that changed the game. Uh, but um, uh, I, I would say that you know recruiting is is uh, even more so back then. But recruiting was always the way that you kind of made your name in the game. You know, your job wasn't to be the head coach. You wasn't coaching the team. 
So your job was to assemble the talent or bring the talent in, assess the talent, bring the talent in, bring in the pieces that that fit to the to the style that your head coach prefers and likes. So you can't just go bring in players. You got to bring in players that's going to fit the head coach's uh, system or that he likes. So say, for example, you know, Syracuse, they like long guys and, and things of that nature. But um, so that was, that was first and foremost. Um, uh, part of the, one of the things that I did, I just, I just, one, I just tried to stay present all the time and you know information in this business information is uh is is important it's of the of the highest level of importance so so you have to get as much information as you possibly can because then it helps you to determine uh whether you have a chance to get a recruit uh whether it makes sense whether you stay in the race or not um it helps you in terms of uh, being more familiar with uh, a young man and his family, uh, the things that are important to him. You know, a lot of times you can hear somebody say and tell you, they pretty much tell you what they're looking for. And with Jason, you know, one of my things was I, I was always telling him, uh, the main thing I told him was uh, at the time, Patrick Ewan had, had, was the first pick in the draft. Chris Weber uh, had come out, was the first pick in the draft. And I just said to him, you know, if you, when you come out of school, he was on that category, on that level in terms of popularity. If, if, if they had had uh, social media back then, he would have been like a, been like Zion in terms of the, the number of followers he would have had. But uh, my main thing to him was, hey, man, when you think of, of Navy, what do you think about? He said, David Robinson. I said, when you think of of Georgetown, what do you think about? I said, Patrick Ewan. I said, he said, I said, if you come to Cal, when people think of Cal, what are they gonna think about? And I would, I would venture to, to say that most people would think of, of Jason Kidd. So that's how it turned out. And uh, that, was a, that was a big thing for us. And he's one of those guys. I always had success recruiting players that, 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 that thought out the box. Uh, because I'm always an out-of-box thinker. So guys that thought, you know, I'm going to do something different. Oh, I'm going to make this place uh, uh, a formidable uh, place to go. I'm going to have people follow me. That's kind of the guys that I had success recruiting. And and to be fair, we had a good recruiting class the year before. So we had the class that was right behind Virginia's class of of – uh, uh, Junior Burrow, Junior Burrows, Corey Alexander, Alexander, Yuri Barnes, Jason Yuri. Williford. Whoa, 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 whoa! Don't don't gas Corey up on this show. <laughs> do not do not put get... any more gas in Corey's tank. If he's listening right now, we are not. His head is this big. We are already making it bigger, man. <laughs> I, no, I I I do know that. I do know that. But I'm only giving you the facts, Chris. Those were the facts. Yeah. We were. We were it was the fourth best recruiting class, and it was behind that class right there, uh, Virginia. And uh, it was a good class. And so that made sense for Jason then. He didn't, he wasn't going to be by himself. So he was comfortable with that. I, I can't forget my man, Big Slim, Chris Alexander, Big 6'9", here in the D.C. area now, was also part of that class. But here's the ironic thing, Chris. One of his main men, one of his homeboys, Brian Deep three Ellerby, who grew up here in the area. They grew up friends. 
was a part of the Virginia staff and helped bring in that talented class in the UVA. So I can only imagine the bragging rights and the conversations that went on between these two jokers that uh, when they were talking about their class versus Cal's class and so on and so forth. But iron sharpens iron, and I know these guys continue to do so. And let's face it, Todd didn't stop there. Todd, you continue to bring in talented guys. I mean, you know, you, you talk about your class. I mean, you have a litany of guys that have gone on through Cal and gone into the NBA. Lamont Murray, Sharif Abdul-Rahim, you know, it, the list goes on. But and, and I love this story. I know this, but I'd love for you to talk about your your recruitment of Sharif when it was when it came down to tell tell the folks out there what you ended up doing and you know what I'm talking about to, to learn this uh to to win Sharif yeah. and I love this. Well, Sharif is a uh, uh, Muslim, and uh, back then uh, it was important to him. His religion was important. I'm not saying it's not important now, but I'm saying back then, as a high school kid, his religion was important to him. So for me, I wanted him to feel comfortable and I wanted to show respect to, to the fact that obviously I'm not a Muslim, but I wanted to show respect to the differences. So I, I, I studied Islam and I studied, I learned about the culture. Mm -hmm. uh, I found we, uh, at the time, I'm saying we, at the time we had one of the, uh, uh, I don't want to say one of the largest, but it was one of the most prominent mosques in the country. And one of the uh, uh, leaders there was in Oakland. And, uh, and I, I went and I studied and made sure that I was prepared. So when I went to the home, I didn't, uh, I didn't step on any toes in terms of uh, cultural responsibilities. I didn't shake his mother's hand. I took my shoes off, um, different things like that. And those are, those are, are, are minimal, but everything's important. And uh, I just wanted to show him the respect that, that I would learn as much as I can learn without actually being a, a Muslim. Um, Akeem Olajuwon used to come out to that uh, mosque, uh, Mahmoud, who had just become, uh, he just made the transition to becoming Mahmoud. Um, he used to come out there and, uh, and so that was big for me. I wanted Sharif to feel comfortable that he could be himself and he can come to, to, uh, to Cal and, and not stick out like a sore thumb. And, you know, we're talking about 25, 20, what, 28 years ago. So you're talking about being different. The Bay Area is like that. The Bay Area is kind of similar to DC. It's, it's made of, of, of different nationalities and, and, and cultures. So that was important to me to do that. So that, that's what TJ's uh, referring to. I, I, I made sure that I, I learned as much as I could about, about the religion so I could be respectful. And granted, we had a, we had a game once. Uh, it's one of my, my fondest memories of Sharif there. We were playing the University of Washington and we were at home and it was during Ramadan. And during Ramadan, you don't eat, you don't eat or, or drink. Now that's, I'm putting quotes on the drink, but you don't eat or drink uh, during daylight hours. And so we're in the middle of the game and Sharif is on fire. I mean, he is on fire and it's a 12 o'clock game. So that means that we had shoot around in the morning. He didn't have anything to eat or drink. Um, 
And then we had the game at 12 o'clock. So Sharif comes to the game, he's out there doing his thing. And his mother is sitting behind the bench and she's saying, Bose, tell Reef he can drink water. They, they say it's okay, he can drink water. And I said, Reef, you, I said, Reef, man, your mom said you can have some water, man. You all right? We just in timeouts. And Reef's going, I'm good, Bose. I'm good, Bose. I'm good, Bose. I'm good, Bose. I mean, I mean, he went out there and he torched these people for like 35 and 15. I mean, it was unbelievable that the zone that he was in during that game was unbelievable. It's one of my favorite uh, Sharif stories uh, that 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 uh, of the time. He was only there a year, uh, but it was it was unbelievable. And he became the first freshman ever to win Pac-10 Player of the Year. Uh, only because, I don't want to say only because, but before when uh, Lou Alcindor and Bill Walton was there, freshmen didn't play varsity. So that's why, that's, that, I'm not saying that's why, but those guys didn't have a chance to play varsity to get to win that award if, if it was impossible. So when I hear that story, that brings up something that we've asked almost anyone involved with college sports this same question. Uh, Jay Billis is very adamant and saying that college players need to get paid uh, in order to make this a level playing field, in order to make this right. Where are you on the concept of college basketball players getting paid? I think it's fair that they get paid. Um, I think that they're going in the right direction with the name, image, and likeness. If Jason Kidd had that back then, he would oh. a lot of money. Uh, nationally, but in the Bay Area, I mean, he's a legend. Uh, Sharif would have would have made a significant amount. Reggie Holmes, who I coached at Morgan State, would have been, I mean, he would have made a ton of money uh, right in in Baltimore. Uh, he became a he became a a, a fan favorite. Um, so um, I, I think it's I think it's important. I think those guys bring a lot to the table. Um, I think that uh, you know there's a misconception. Some people say, "Well, they're going, they're getting a free education." Yeah, but they're bringing a lot to a university. You can you can do a lot through your university, as as how I want to say this. The you know they say that the athletic program is the porch to the house. So I remember having this conversation with the president at Morgan State when we went to the tournament for the first time in the history of the school, and I said, "Doc, I said, you know, you can't pay for this kind of." publicity. We're in the New York Times. We want to cover Sports Illustrated. I mean, on and on and on. And you can't even, I mean, the, the, the amount of exposure that you get that you bring to the university is, is tremendous. And I think it's a fair, it's a fair uh, trade-off. Well, when I hear you say that being the porch to the house, I got to say at some universities, that's underselling it, man. I mean, when I think of my time, and I'm going to say some universities because I, I cover pro sports now, whether it was at LSU and going to Alabama's campus and seeing all the facilities that they have, Ohio State, I'm like, yeah, you have tuition that costs it. But the money is funneling in to academics and to buildings and to, to making people want to come and attend the university. In some cases, you say athletics is the porch. I say it's the actual foundation on which the finances of the university uh, stands on. That's not the case at every place. Like props to UVA. That's not the case there. You know, your academic prowess was what it was before that. But there are a lot of universities where I look at their success over, you know, a 20 or 30 year span 
and it begins with with the success of athletics. So I just wanted to make sure that I threw that in there, TJ, as far as saying the porch, it sounds good in some places, but man, it, it's that foundational piece at other universities. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt. And, it, and increase, if it increases enrollment, then it actually is, is you're right, it's, it's, a, it's a foundation. But uh, I would say, I would venture to, to guess that UVA got a big lick off of, of uh, winning the national championship, uh, even in terms of, of enrollment. I mean, it already is a prestigious institution. I'm a booster of, uh, of, of, of UVA. Uh, so I've, I've given money to the school in, in large sums. Uh, for four years, I was consistent with that. So, so what he's alluding to, Chris, is his daughter graduated from UVA <laughs> and, is, and is married to uh, a former basketball player or a basketball alumni. He's still a current basketball player, Darion Atkins, and uh, they are uh, are expecting here in May. Todd, this will be your fourth grandchild? Fourth, yeah. Fourth grandchild. So, grandchild, yeah. Yeah. So he's been an admin donor to the University of Virginia, and we do appreciate his support. But to that point, I've talked to kids offline because uh, my connections to UVA and a lot of parents want to say, hey, who do you know in admissions who that can talk to, maybe give a black perspective uh, at the university? And what I hear from students a lot of times who are not athletes is that they want to be a part of that NCAA title run that different teams go on. They want to be in the stands yeah. and celebrating that 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 uh, that scenario. They want to be a part of that big brash celebration to be, you know, all a part of that. And that's a part of their decision on where they're going to school. So you're absolutely correct, Chris, when you bring that point up of how much, you know, your ex I've always said athletics at a college and university is your largest external facing mechanism to bring popularity to your institution. And if you've got a great, you know, athletic program, not just football, but you add basketball, your Olympic sports, such like UVA has now, you know, I think that, you know, that definitely plays a part in the success of enrollment and it increases all the finances coming in. So why not break off those guys that are out there, you know, paying their dues to help bring that popularity to the institution? You know, it's funny you say that too, uh, TJ, because my daughter in picking her, the school she wanted to attend, football and basketball were important to her. She wanted to be able to experience that. And there's a young man that's a, that's a high school, he's a pretty a prominent high school player, basketball player right now. And I'm only saying this, I'm not gonna say his name, but uh, in talking to his father, his father said he wants his son to experience uh, he doesn't want him to go to a school that only has basketball. He wants mm -hmm. him to go to a school that has big time football as well, because he wants him to get the full experience of, of being on a college uh, campus. So he, he wants him to go somewhere where they have uh, major college football, or BCS football. So can he, so, cause he, in his mind, uh, that that's experiencing the entire college experience as an, as an athlete anyway, or, athletic experience. Sure. Todd, let's go back to your years at Cal. So you're 29 years old, youngest coach to take a uh, team of the Pac-10 since Sweet 16. And you've got this bomb squad. So I think about the coaches during that time in that league. Got Lou Olson at Arizona, uh, raveling at USC. Uh, who's at UCLA at that time? 
Jim Herrick. Jim Herrick is there. Uh, you know, another thing. Big name coaches. And you are running through the conference like Grant went through Richmond. So, you know, talk about the, you know, you're like you as as you as said, you know, you're a 29 year old coach with a lot of enthusiasm, as you said, that doesn't know no better, but clearly you do know better that you put this squad together. And, you know, how are you being perceived in around the coaching uh, coaching world and by your peers in the Pac-10? Well, you know, Bill Frieder was at Arizona State at the time. Mike Montgomery was at Stanford. And his name is slipping my mind right now, but he his his son is the coach at at uh, Long Beach State right now. But his mm-hmm. dad, the coach at Long Beach State right now, his dad Don Munson, okay, was at Oregon. Um, so it was some pretty. Kelvin Sampson was at Washington State. Uh, I mean, it was a lot of. I mean, when you think back on it, I mean, it was it was tough back then. Uh, but I, I would say that that I probably was. Not probably. I was dealing with things that was before my time in terms of uh, I was young, I was black, I was uh, aggressive. Um, I, I, I'm positive that I, I wasn't as humble as I, I became. Um, but uh, so there was some brashness there. Uh, I think also what I was dealing with was uh, of a, a misinformation or misnomer uh, communication of how I got the job and I became the head coach, my transition to becoming a head coach. Um, you know, some people had tried to put out there that, that, that there, there was uh, some things done that, that caused me to get the job. So, so I was dealing with all of that. Um, it wasn't any young guys that were head coaches at the time. All of my, uh, I, I'm going to say friends, because my peers, I had peers of, of coaches, older coaches. But most of the guys that I kind of hung out with were assistants, and they were still assistants. So um, that's kind of the thing I was dealing with that. So it was a lot. It was it was a lot. And, and, and my way of dealing with it was I pretty much just closed myself off and I had a, I had, I was one of the first coaches that had a cell phone. Dave Lado and I talk about that. I walked in ABCD camp with the big, long. The brick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I had the phone, I had a pager and, and I didn't, uh, I didn't really answer calls outside of what I knew. Um, so I kind of just closed myself off and I, I, you know, I had my staff and, um, and that's what I did. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I handled it. But those were the different things that I was dealing with at that time. I mean, yeah. is that, is that, did I answer the question or maybe I maybe I kind of veered off a little bit? Well, I, I think to, to add a little filler to that, what, what was being said, I think that you touched on a little bit, words had gotten out there about how you got the job. People had put out there that you had backdoored the head coach, Lou Campanelli, at that time to, you know, throw shade on him to elevate yourself to get to that position. And you would clearly say that that was not that not how that thing went down. Well, I mean, if you just look around, it, it happens. I mean, if they if, if if they fire a coach during the season, they they have to have somebody to 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 take them through the rest of the the year, and that's pretty much what it was. They didn't give me the job. They didn't give me a contract uh, once they made the change. 
they they said you we want you to take the team through the rest of the season. That was it. Period. It just so happened we went on like a 13-1 run and we beat UCLA. They were number one. We beat Arizona. They were number one. Um, we, we, we went in and we went to the tournament and that's when they started talking about it. But I didn't actually get the job until after we went to the Sweet 16. So that that's the part that, that people leave, leave out. But you know, you gotta remember. I mean, if if you look at now, if you look now, and it's not me comparing myself to to uh, Barack Obama. So you know, sometimes people will try to say that when you use an analogy. But the way they tried to to discredit his success, that was one of the things that was going on with me trying to discredit the the success that we were able to have. Uh, and to 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 try to 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 discredit the fact of saying that you know he's young and how did he get the job and things like you know things happen. I mean it, it's 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 part of it. You see it every day. You know you see it, but it depends on how the person that was in the position kind of deals with it. So you look at the Atlanta Hawks for example. You know they just had Nate McMillan took took over the job and you know sure clearly he probably didn't want to really do that, but you know, somebody had to coach the team. So they, they talked about their communication. I had that same type of communication with, with uh, the coach before me. I had the communication with him. So it's not like I didn't, I'd already talked to him about it. And his exact words were, somebody got to coach the team. So we just happened to have success. And that's what prompted them to then elevate me to, to uh, the head coach on a, on a consistent, on me, on a, permanent basis yeah and to that point Nate McMillan should have still had that job in Indiana that's how I feel about it I, I can't believe that the Pacers let him go and that he didn't immediately have another job so he deserves that shot that job in Atlanta and it's sad to see Lloyd Pierce out of a job with the Hawks but uh, that's neither here nor there you brought that up so I wanted to make sure I, I said that about those two guys who are both uh, excellent men and leaders there's a term that I want to ask you about uh, it's called the show cause ban that they put on you for eight years. And when I read your story and I see that, okay, it seems as if, and you can clarify for me, you got in trouble uh, with the NCAA for trying to have parents come to kids' games. That's what I read. That's how I see it. You can enlighten me on that. And there was an eight-year ban, meaning that other schools and programs couldn't bring you in. How accurate is that? And what was that like for you in that time? Because again, I, without saying any names, I talked to a lot of people involved in college basketball. I know what the truth is. And I see that and I'm like, that's too much. To, to well, hear your story, that's too much. Yeah, and I, and I, and I appreciate you saying that. It, it, it's, it's interesting because uh, the show calls actually is, that it's not that they can't hire you. So I'm sure that there's some legalities there for them to say they can't hire you. What, they, what the rule states is, is that if they want to hire you, they, want, they have to show cause. They have to show a reason why they should be able to hire you and how they're going to monitor you uh, and, and alike. So, um, so it's, 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 it'd be like most people don't want most people, even though you could say people will, will say that they, they abide by the rules, most people don't want to let the IRS just come in and look through your taxes, right? 
So it's like it's like saying, hey, you know, we want to hire and we're going to allow you to come in and look at our taxes. Like most people are not going to do that. So that's why they throw it up there. You have to do this. And it's for eight years. This is going to stay on. It ended up being 10 because it, I didn't get it until the year after my case didn't come up to the year after. And then I didn't get back in until a year after it was over. So if, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, and and it was. Uh, you know, I, I've always tried, I've always been an optimistic person. So I have this quote that I, not, I didn't have it then, but now it just fits so much for me. It's a Nelson, Nelson Mandela quote. And he says, don't judge me by my successes, judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up. And I, and I, I, just, I just love that because that's, that's, that's the resiliency that I try to live by. And uh, at the time, what I did was I looked at, um, I looked at coaches like like Calipari, who didn't get his first head coaching job till he was 41. I looked at John Chaney. It's ironic I'm using those two right together like that. But John Chaney, uh, rest <laughs> rest in peace. That that he didn't get his first head coaching job till he was 51. So here I was 29, and I was looking at it. And I was saying, man, you know, these guys didn't get their jobs. And I used a couple other examples. And I said, so if I have, if I sit out this entire time, then I'll be this age. And I was now, I was, a, I was naive to think that I could just roll right back in um, because that's what I thought, but that definitely was not the case. And I had to do some, uh, some, uh, um, uh, what do you call it? I don't want to say it's not self-marketing, but I had to do some self-promoting. I had to not self-promoting even because that wasn't that wasn't even the right rebuilding like, your image. I had to rebuild right? my yeah. image, rebranding. I had to I had to really do that. If I had started that earlier, it might have been a, a simpler or easier transition for me. But some of the, a lot of the things that are going on now, had I implemented those back then, it probably would have been a little bit different. But if you look at it, they they allow you to fly parents to games now. Um, they allow you, they get ready to go with the NLI, I mean the NIL, they're getting ready to let them make money. You look at uh, Kelvin Sampson, who is obviously in the final four right now. And when he, when he lost his job at Indiana, they said that he had made excessive phone calls. Now you can make phone calls to players, you know, as, as much as you want. I mean, it's, it's, it's things just kind of evolve. And, and uh, so that's what it is. I know I'm, I went along way around answering your question, but. Um, Todd, let me, let me jump in right here because I want to say some things that you probably, I'm sure you're comfortable saying at this stage of the game, but being a former assistant coach myself, and Chris, with that term, when you talk about the show cause, and correct me if I'm wrong, both of you guys, it was not just showing the cause why they should be able to hire you, but it was also the penalties that were rendered unto you had, did they transfer to the new institution? Was that a part of it? No. No, that wasn't. Okay. I well, just had that. I just had that under me for that amount of time. Um, yeah, that's that's all it was. I, I know that there's a. Um, yeah, that wasn't the case. They, they, it wasn't like they were going to get. They would because they because how can they have to forfeit the games that they would have played before I even got there? Right. Yeah, that's not the case. My my problem is this with this this show cause, and I sat in as a assistant coach on the the. Uh, the Black College, uh, the College Coaches Association, Black Coaches Association with the NCAA, and I heard uh, Big John Thompson speak 
to the uh, inequities that are in, uh, in, in college basketball, how it's harder for black coaches to move ahead. And obviously we have the Rooney rule that's in place. But I also remember at that time when I was going to what was obviously our conference, when you go to the final four, this is where a lot of the education for assistant coaches and we got to go to classes and things like that to, to think of, learn about ethics. But you have ADs where Larry Eustacey at that time, who was the head coach, um, I believe he was at Iowa State at, at, at that time, highest paid official, government official in the state of Iowa, after a loss on the road, goes to a frat house. And he's seen taking pictures with sorority and fraternity kids, drinking beer after a loss. They were notorious for having a Winnebago follow the team bus. And Eustacey would stay around after a loss and drink with fraternity kids. Now, he gets let go from Iowa State because of the pictures that surfaced. Not even a full year later, he gets a job at um, Southern Miss. I look at right now, Rick Pitino, who suffered what he suffered at Louisville and one of the biggest scandals that are out there. But now he's at, at Iona, given another chance. Now, I can't say, and I'm not going to weigh the discrepancies of what happened to you versus what happened to them. You mentioned Calvin Sampson. That wasn't his first time being let go from an institution because of infractions yet and still given another chance. It just seems to me, as Chris pointed out, that what was rendered unto you was over and above anything that you were accused of doing and that has caused you to be, had to cause you out of, out of the game for what was essentially 10 years, but ultimately eight, depending on how you look at it. Right. Yeah, and I, and I, and I appreciate you saying that. I, I don't really focus on that as much uh, because it's in the past and I don't, uh, I, I try not to, to weigh it in terms of, you know, comparing it to, to others and, and what they've, they've uh, experienced. I know I was, <laughs> I was a young, brash brother back then. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I've had guys even since then comment and talk about how I used to carry myself out there. I'm not talking about in a, in a, way where I looked down on anybody, but uh, I was I was comfortable and confident. I mean, I was, I represented the, the, the DMV. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it's. Uh, I think they were definitely making a, um, making a, an example for sure. Uh, I would say, even though through all of that, uh, and I'm not saying I'm glad it happened, but it ended up, you know, a lot of times things end up, you find some real positives in it. And the fact that I was able to spend the last 10 years of my dad's life with him here, back here in the DC area, and my kids got a chance to know their grandfather. They have their own stories about their grandfather, their own memories that they were able to spend that time with him. Had I still been out there, uh, they wouldn't have been able to have that, op they wouldn't have had that opportunity. So it would have been a little bit different. And it, it you know, that's, that's kind of the way that I've, I've viewed it uh, in, in, a, in a positive sense. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's kind of how, how I've, I've carried on. I've since have gotten another opportunity. It did come 10 years later. 
but getting another opportunity by going to Morgan State and they entrusted me with their program. And I'm very thankful for that. And Dr. Richardson gave me that opportunity. So it, it, it you know, I, I did get another opportunity. Now, not another opportunity at a, at a, uh, a BCS level. And I think that, that when you start talking about uh, inequities, inequities and, 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 and it not being fair, that's another thing. There's a lot of times coaches, they don't give uh, coaches credit for having success at a level that's deemed a lower level. Uh, and, and sometimes they look at the MEAC like that. And I, and I definitely disagree with that. Did I just, did I just transition into something else that, that, that I'm not the host of this podcast. <laughs> did I just transition into something else. I didn't mean to do that. I was just talking. No, you absolutely did. You know, you absolutely, you're a visionary coach. We know, we know that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess when I look at, so let's talk about Todd Bozeman now. Todd Bozeman is, is, is different than who he was at 29, obviously, and I think we all are. At least let's, let's hope we all are, right? Right. But what is Todd Bozeman the next five years? What does that look like for you? Are you hopeful to get another job back in the, in the game? If, you know, for example, when you see positions like George Mason open up, or, you know, things that are local or things that are jobs that you feel like you could be qualified to get. Is that something that you would want to uh, pursue? Well, I mean, you, I, I never say never, and I, I, I won't predict the future, um, but I will say that, I, you know, I want to be around the game. So if the right opportunity comes up, then that's something that I have to look at and, and, and try to take advantage of. Um, if 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 it's in God's will and I don't coach again, uh, my wife and I have had this conversation. I have had a great time. It has allowed me to put my family through school. Everybody got master's degrees. Uh, uh, they my my children have gone to some great schools, um, and uh, and I've, I've I've coached two Olympic gold medalists. Uh, two Hall of Famers, uh, granted one in both sports and football and basketball, uh, all-time winning his coach at Morgan, youngest coach to take a team to the Sweet 16. And, I, and I'm just saying those things as, you know, I, you know, at Morgan, we beat Maryland. I mean, we won at Maryland. We won at Arkansas, DePaul. I mean, I could go on and on. And the, the great wins and games that we had at, at Cal, um, you know, seven pros from there. So I've, I've done a lot. So, and I'm just saying that this clearly there's, I'm not saying that, I mean, clearly there's guys that have had uh, a, a lot more success than I have had, but I'm just looking at it from my standpoint and the fact that when I started, if, if that if that was the end, then I've had a good run and I'm good with that. It's it's, it's about the next step. But if, if an opportunity presents itself, then I'm all for that too. Um, so that's just kind of how I look at it. Hopefully I answered your question. Absolutely. Chris, when we think about the NCAA tournament, Todd and I, upon occasion, will chat about different players and, you know, the success of certain players coming out of the DMV. We've had a litany of them over the years. Todd is obviously a, uh, played at a lesser school in the WCAC <laughs> when he played <laughs> at McNamara. 
but he's coached a ton of talent. But let's just look at the tournament and guys that have, have shown well. Luca Garza is one that stands out, Todd. You know, he had an incredible run at Iowa. They're going to retire his jersey. Uh, you know, and then that's on the back end. And then we look at the front end of the tournament, the younger player. You talk about the big kid coming out of the mouth of the Mecca. You know, we all know what that is. And we know what we produce out of there. Nothing but the finest. <laughs> You know, let's let's talk about some of these kids, Todd, their success, how they project moving forward to the NBA. Chris is an NBA guy. Uh, how do you guys see these kids transitioning moving forward? You want me, you want me to go first, Chris? I mean, you the guest, brother. Come on, talk to us. Okay, I mean, I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, uh, well, first of all, let me say that, that McNamara is a very intense academic institution. <laughs> Everybody can't get in there. So they have to go somewhere. So I understand. I just want to. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> Everybody can't get into McNamara, but you know we kind of deal with a. You know we pick it from a smaller pool. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I think that of those those two that you talked about, I mean I I just think that right now the the, the big man the more you can do the more they'll be able to, the more value you'll bring. And I think that uh, Luca, although he's had a, a tremendous uh, college career, I'm interested in seeing how they use him. I know he can shoot the three, but he's got to guard guys too. That's number one. Uh, he's got to be able to get up and down the floor uh, consistently. And I'm sure he'll, he'll work at that. Uh, and when you use uh, Hunter Dickerson, um, he, he, he's, he's, he's got a little bit more uh, to his game, but he doesn't have the three point distance or, or, or capabilities that, that Luca has. But, um, I, I mean, I think, I mean, he could, he could do a lot and they both can pass the ball. Uh, Hunter Dickinson probably passes the ball a little bit better. Um, I, you know, that's, that's, that's my, that's my assessment. I still think they both are going to, uh, struggle with finding an identity uh, in the NBA and finding their niche in the NBA. What you think, Chris? I think uh, you hit the nail on the head with how difficult it is for centers now. We expect them to be able to come out and have triple doubles, like DeMontis Sabonis or uh, Nikola Jokic. Like the bar is so high for centers now because the game is so inverted. I mean, the big men, you mentioned Hunter's passing skills. That might be the thing that gets him a spot in the NBA above his ability to be seven feet tall because like that used to be almost enough, right? Oh, you're seven feet tall. You can get up and down the court. We got a spot for you. We'll figure it out later. Now it's more or less like, all right, well, we'll take this six, eight guy, have him play center. If he can leap and he can pass. Okay. Seven, one guy, how are you going to keep up with that? I, I think it's crazy uh, what we're seeing now in the NBA TJ. So that was a great question. Yeah. They've taken out the low post game. I mean, you don't see many people, going to the to the low post and that was it was interesting when we were watching the Michigan game the other day against UCLA Michigan was going to the post I mean consistently even with the the young man that was uh the backup to Hunter but UCLA was playing all perimeter and Michigan was playing trying to go as much into the post and it was so ironic that the last three shots they got were all from the perimeter and not from the post which they had focused on going into the post majority, most of the game I guess that's why we saw one of those being air ball. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hey, stick to stick to the lakes and the rivers you used to, right, TJ? <laughs> Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Todd, you're a DC guy and we want to be respectful of your time. So we'll close out on this last question. You got friends coming from the outside of the DMV. You're a DMV guy. They, they say, Todd, where's one place I should go when I come to DC to get a true DC experience? What would you tell them? Wow, what a question, man. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I want to say this though. I will say that there's no place like this area in the world, uh, particularly for black folks because there's so much to do and so much, for, but, but I'm saying for anybody really, but uh, because there's so much to do. I mean, there's so much to do. There's something to do every day of the week. Uh, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of uh, Southwest right now. Um, uh, there's things that, that they have down there. You can walk down and you could do a lot. I mean, you could do, you could do, you could do a lot. So I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question there, TJ. I, I, you know, I can't believe you threw that one on me without any, any. Uh, All right. So what if I gave you not just one option? What if I gave you multiple options? Let me say places to visit. Let me get three places where you say to get a DC experience. You know, would you say go over to Anacostia and visit the big chair? Would you say go to Ben's Chili Bowl, which is always a favorite? Would you say they got to stop at Eddie Leonard's and make sure you get four chicken wings fried hard with bumbo sauce? Talk to the people, Todd. Come on, you DMV. You a carry out dude. Gus's, man. You you saying food? You you talking about? I'm giving you I'm giving you options. You you are. Well, Todd, that's that's TJ's experience. He's going to tell you all about the food, man. <laughs> hey, I'm no stranger to a good plate, see, man. Come on see, now. You see, so my thing is my thing has changed. Like I like I love like I said I love the Southwest experience. Um, uh, you know, you say Ben's Chili Bowl, but I, I you know, you could say the U Street Corridor. Um, or you could say, you could say U Street to, to Adams Morgan. Um, I think to get the DC experience, you have to see and witness, uh, and try to experience as much of the, the diversity in the cultures as much as possible. Um, I love that, that corridor down there where the F street, where, where, uh, you have the cigar lounges. Um, I, I love that. Uh, but I also love uh, 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 National Harbor. I love the National Harbor. Uh, I love Southwest, as I said uh, earlier. I just, I, I just love the area. I, you know, in, in terms of the food, I mean, I don't, I don't eat much. So uh, I eat the. I, you know, I'm not. Hold on, bro. What you saying, man? What you, what you trying to say? Here? I'm only answering. Chris <laughs> brought up that, and and I'm only responding to what he said to me. So brother, just, brother packs on a few pounds after the playing game and next thing you know, I'm getting fat shamed out here. I, on the, oh. I don't eat chicken. I don't eat chicken. I don't eat red meat. I, I very rarely eat some seafood. So that's why I like the wharf because, you know, I could go down there and I could get some good seafood and, uh, you know, you could go, you know, you got the, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I like too. I like, I like that area uh, over by uh, National Stadium. I like okay, the Navy Yard. Navy Yard. Navy yeah, Yard. Obviously, I like that area over there. 
So sometimes my wife and I, we just ride around and we just kind of hang out. But it's something to do for everybody, TJ. Let me let me say that. It's something to do for everybody. It don't matter what you into. It don't matter what nationality you are. It don't matter how old you are. When my older cousins and relatives come up, they want to go to the casino, which is good. You got three, three right here that they could go to. Uh, the younger ones want to go hang out, but you could take them to the Houston corridor. I mean, so now you got me being a... A, 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 <laughs> a tour guide. Yeah, this, your, this, this is your next part-time hustle. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, but you know what I'm gonna take them first is to the cigar lounge. Bingo. So that's Bingo. what I'm gonna do. The, oh, the one you said I dragged you in there kicking and screaming in there to get you to do the show. That's the one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hey, Chris, this is what 57 years old and sage advice gets you. He takes you to all the eclectic places around D.C., places I can't frequent because I can't pay $20 to park. So I ain't going over to National Harbor, and I ain't going to Southwest unless I got somebody paying for parking. But now I get it. TJ, what's so funny about that is $20 for parking? <laughs> I'm from New York, man. That might get you an hour and a half. $20 for parking. I'm in nonprofit, uh, brother. I don't make no money. <laughs> with that, we'd like to uh, make sure we say thank you again to Topo for, for stepping to the mic, man. We appreciate you. I appreciate you guys having me on, man. It was fun. Uh, although I wasn't in the cigar lounge like TJ had promised me and sold me on, it was a good time. I appreciate talking to you guys. Some great memories there and talking about the past. And, you know, just, you know, it, it, was, it was fun, man. So I appreciate it, all right? Call him coach, but it's great to be able to call him a friend. My man, Todd, thanks for coming on, brother. All right, guys, take care.